What's up, people? I'm Erica, and this is Cocktails and Capitalism, a podcast that pairs crafted beverages with stories distilled from our capitalist hellscape. Today, I'm joined by my new producer, editor, and dear friend, John, so you may hear him chime in. We had a few technical difficulties with the new recording setup, so you may notice a dip in the quality at a few points. Apologies for that. Today, we have Ben joining us, who is an old friend and uh, the husband of one of my best friends, and uh, he's very interested in leftist politics. I think he has extensive knowledge in that area, but he, <laughs> he doesn't feel comfortable with me saying that, so. <laughs> but That's I just right. did anyway. Sorry. <laughs> so for the cocktail today, I'm drinking the Victory Gin Martini, which was crafted by Greg of How to Drink on YouTube, which is a great channel that I've I've watched a few of his videos. They're really really awesome. He's just kind of funny, and he um he kind of comes up with themed cocktails. And he did one for using Victory Gin. He he was really obsessed with Orwell when he was a kid. So um, he kind of gave a little bit of a look into the novel while he was also crafting this cocktail and drinking it. Um, and it, it's, it turns out to be pretty fucking good. It's not as um, toxic tasting as you would think, given that Victory Gin is supposed to be this like really, really mm, kind of painful to drink, caustic, um, industrial tasting, uh, oily tasting <laughs> drink that's not supposed to be very good. People just kind of swallow it down to deal with the problems of everyday life and Oceania in this dystopic state. So, um, so it's made of two ounces of vodka, one ounce of, um, I use Gekikan sake because he, he used a different kind of, um, Asian hard alcohol and I didn't have that. And I think this is probably more readily on hand for people. And then a couple dashes of orange bitters and I muddled it with some juniper berries and, um, shook it up, strained it. And uh, here it is. And it actually tastes really fucking good. So, Ben, what are you drinking today? Um, I'm actually drinking uh, Spanish Civil War era uh, Catalonian water from a well. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what... I'm not much of a drinker, so I'm going to stick with water today. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, dude. Alrighty. Well, shall we dive right in? Let's do it. I'm excited. All right. So, so much of George Orwell's thinking has become relevant to our present-day reality. References to Big Brother, the all-seeing dictator from the novel 1984, are commonplace in these times. America has become a surveillance superpower, along with China, Russia, India, Germany, and England. This is especially the case in the wake of the September 11th attacks, as the Patriot Act permitted the government to gather massive amounts of data on American citizens. The NSA documents Edward Snowden leaked 12 years later began to expose the extent that Big Brother is illegally surveilling American citizens. What's more, under capitalism, most of us have gotten used to handing over our information to corporations that monitor our activities through our devices. So much of our screen time-dominated reality reflects the totalitarian world of 1984, a world where telescreens are constantly watching and monitoring everything you do. The key difference is that we choose to purchase the products that gather our data, devices, devices used by state and corporate powers to secure further profits and sway elections. The erosion of truth and meaning is another theme from 1984 that resonates with us today. By constantly eliminating words from the English language, the Ministry of Truth works to limit the range of thought for citizens of the superstate Oceania. It's fake news. Fake news, exactly, <laughs> <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs> facts, man. Yeah, 1984 is also a favorite book of like right-wing nutjobs, too, so... It's pretty yeah. awesome. It's used by both sides, which is pretty neat. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this topic, because people yeah. t misinterpret him all of all across the board. Even Constantly. people on the left misinterpret him hugely yeah. Yeah. versus what he explicitly says about what his message is that he's trying to get across. So it's like, we got to work through some of these multiple interpretations. So Yeah, seriously. Good call. <laughs> so... This dumbing down of language known as Newspeak works to restrict all forms of thinking that might undermine party rule. 
In the novel, the equation 2 plus 2 equals 5 represents the tyrannical destruction of critical thought in favor of blind ideology. Like the character Winston, we've seen truth and meaning stripped from our language during Trump's years in power. The alternative facts espoused by Kellyanne Conway and the former president made our eyes roll. Think about the BS that Trump with Trump's inauguration crowds and everything. (laughs) But this pattern of denying reality is more than disgusting. It has deadly consequences in relation to COVID science and climate change. Trump's refusal to distance himself from the batshit crazy QAnon folks shows us how complete the divorce from reality has been for some gullible citizens. We've even had to watch as Trump doubles down on his refusal to accept the results of an election in which he was the clear loser, and many members of his party have been happy to regurgitate the same stupid fucking lies to please their misguided followers. All of these strange departures from reality have a distinctly Orwellian character. This is why I want to talk about his life and the radical experiences that made him into an anti-totalitarian democratic socialist. Many have misinterpreted 1984 as a novel that condemns socialism. This is partially because the dystopian government of Oceania is known as Ingsoc, short for English Socialism. The party portrays itself as a socialist state that has overcome the evils of capitalism. But I want to make it very clear that this novel is in no way a rejection of socialism. Orwell tells us this in the essay Why I Write, where he explains that, quote, every line of serious work that I have written since 1936 has been written directly or indirectly against totalitarianism and for democratic socialism. As I tell the story of George Orwell's life, I'm going to pay special attention to the experiences that crystallized his anti-capitalist pro-socialist views. That's like the oldest trick in the book, though, is doing the like adding socialist to the oldest trick in the fascist handbook is adding socialist to your name or using like in the Spanish Civil War, the the phalange used the fascist party in Spain used blue uniforms because that's what the 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 leftists wore. And so they they often co-op symbol like symbols and and dress and ways of talking like using the word comrade and things like that mm-hmm. to uh, to to appeal to a working class. See, this is exactly why I wanted you on the show. Because <laughs> you know the shit. <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know a shit or two. I know some shit. <laughs> I think this will clear up a lot of the misunderstandings that have haunted his works, his life's work, and his contributions to political thought. So, Ben, what do you know about George Orwell's life? Um, not, not a lot. Um, I know, I got very, very into the Spanish Civil War, um, Mm -hmm. as like a a precursor to World War II and Mm -hmm. the, the aid that they got from like German and Italian fascism. Um, Mm -hmm. so I've, I've read parts of his book, uh, like skimmed it basically. I think it's maybe homage to Catalonia. I might be getting that wrong. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or that might be awesome. the Ernest. I know because Ernest Hemingway was also there, and so I confuse mm-hmm. their stories sometimes because I've read about mm-hmm. them both. But yeah, basically that's all I know is that he he was in Spain during the Spanish Civil War, and um, yeah, and I mean I know he wrote 1984, uh, mm-hmm. and I yeah I mean I constantly hear that book referenced by people like Dave Rubin and like Ben Shapiro <laughs> as like any time the government does anything they're like oh 1984 so that's that's yeah. basically my experience with george orwell and yeah. and i know yeah. that he that he was a socialist of some some sort mm-hmm. okay that's that's good context for me just to understand where you're at with it yeah john should i <laughs> no <laughs> nope should i just go then just go okay go. Yeah, I don't know shit about him. Okay. <laughs> well, you're going to learn, buddy. <laughs> so He wrote uh, Fahrenheit 451, right? <laughs> no, I think he wrote the Narnia Chronicles. <laughs> oh, that's right, yeah. I was getting mm-hmm. confused. <laughs> and they turned it into that movie with the... Um... Where the Wild Things Are. No, no, no. it's the one where... Um, it's the one that made, like, Elijah Wood really famous. Oh, The Hobbit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, it's like... Uh, yeah, it was like the the Hobbit's journey to through the wardrobe or something like that, and back again, <laughs> and back yeah. again. The Hobbit rides again. I think was the second one. <laughs> well, Lord really... of the Rings two, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> Shout out to all my Boogaloo boys out there. 
<laughs> Fuck no. Fuck them. All right, that's a wrap. <laughs> We're done. Can we leave Good that job, in? <laughs> yeah, you guys clearly don't need to hear the story. You know it all already. So. Yeah, we're good. We're good. Yeah, that's Orwell in a nutshell right there. <laughs> we'll see about you that. could cut the shout out to the Boogaloo Boys, though. That would. Be- oh my god! Oh my god! No. It's really funny. What is that from? Is that is oh. that from Jungle Book? What is that? <laughs> isn't that the? Isn't that the bear? Yeah, it's the bear in the jungle book, exactly. He's the bear necessities and the right to bear arms. Yeah. yeah. God damn it. Yeah, Boogaloo is my favorite character. Well, this is a totally different episode than I was hoping to do, but I'm into it. All right. All right. I'm sorry. That's it. That's it for me. Peanut Gallery is closing shop. (laughs) No, please don't. All right. So. I'm going to jump into Orwell's life now. So 30 years before adopting the pen name George Orwell, Eric Arthur Blair is born on the 25th of June, 1903, in Matahari, Bengal. His family is living in East India because his father, Richard Walmsley Blair, is working for the Indian Civil, Ser- Indian Civil Service as an opium agent. Not long after his birth, Eric moves back to England with his mom, And much later, he writes that he had been born into the, quote, lower upper middle class. And he frequently mentions the snobbishness of his childhood. Speaking of his parents, he says they had the attitudes of the, quote, landless gentry who acted like the upper class in spite of their lack of substantial wealth. So young Eric leaves home to attend boarding school at the age of eight, where his elitist attitude only intensifies. Yeah, a boarding school is not going to help with an elitist attitude, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Especially not a a good one. He went to some good schools. Yeah, or with getting molested, which happens at those places. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) It does not help with that. No. (laughs) If you're looking to not get molested, don't go to a British boarding school. That's all. God damn it. That's the tagline for this episode, folks. <laughs> I'm sorry. Am I fucking this up? No, you do. Like no, this, this is perfect, up. dude. <laughs> Absolutely. This perfect. is a podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, carry on. Sorry, Eric. <laughs> no. <laughs> While at school, little Eric struggles with bedwetting. He feels an immense amount of shame about the socially unacceptable habit, and the shame increases with every beating he receives. In an essay titled "Such Such Were the Joys." George Orwell writes, I knew that bedwetting was A, wicked, and B, outside my control. It was possible, therefore, to commit a sin without knowing you committed it, without wanting to commit it, and without being able to avoid it. Sin was not necessarily something that you did. It might be something that happened to you. This was the great abiding lesson of my boyhood, that I was in a world where it was not possible for me to be good. And the double beating was a turning point, for it brought home to me, for the first time, the harshness of the environment into which I had been flung. Life was more terrible, and I was more wicked than I had imagined. At any rate, as I sat on the edge of a chair in Sim's study, with not even the self-possession to stand up while he stormed at me, I had a conviction of sin and folly and weakness, such as I do not remember to have felt before. Yeah, so that that's going to be... I'm going to reference this again, the whole Bedouin yeah. thing later on in relation to 1984. Uh, I feel really bad for him, poor guy. I know, right? <laughs> this is sad. He's like, if that's li- what he was thinking as a child, like, can yeah. you imagine that cynical little fucking kid? <laughs> like, I know. that It's like kind of sounds like some grown-up thoughts to me. That's some thoughts oh, yeah. I'd have. <laughs> I mean, he's... I mean, he's if not about my bedwetting, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about your bedwetting? Um, you know what? I'm okay with it at this point. Oh, good. That's a grown Just up thought. Just used to it. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty grown up, so. <laughs> Cheers to Ben being grown up. <laughs> Woo! So, um, Eric grows to become an independent, rebellious youth with a strong aversion to authority. He attends St. Cyprian Preparatory School in Eastbourne, where he is awarded a scholarship to the prestigious boarding school known as Eton. He begins, he begins attending the school in May of 1917, 
While at Eton, he cultivates an elitist attitude, viewing lower-class commoners as subhuman, but this attitude is short-lived. At the age of 19, the young Eric Arthur Blair moves to Burma, which is still a British-run colony at this point. Here, he becomes a colonial officer serving in the Indian Imperial Police. This is a fucking weird twist for him. Yeah. <laughs> Imperial police officers, they're, they're just holding down the colony, basically, making sure that, that the locals don't step out of line and, and, you know, challenge the power structure, which is, yeah. you know, so like the British oppression. Yeah, they're general. police officers, but just, yeah. you know, Imperial police officers, so not... In the in their own country, just yeah, yeah, they're, with they're, the locals. An oc- <laughs> they're an occupying force, kind occupying of like our police yeah. officers are, but just yeah. in their own country, yeah, <laughs> just in different sections of their own country, I guess. Uh huh. <laughs> totally. Okay. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. He writes extensively about this pivotal period of his life in the 1937 book *The Road to Wigan Pier*. This work was partially a declaration of his socialist economic viewpoint and partially a journalistic investigation of the horrible economic conditions in northern England prior to the Second World War. When later on I got rid of my class prejudice... It's all part of it. It was in a roundabout way and by a process that took several years. The thing that changed my attitude to the class issue was something only indirectly connected with it. I was in the Indian police five years, and by the end of that time, I hated the imperialism I was serving with a bitterness which I probably cannot make clear. In the free air of England, that kind of thing is not fully intelligible. In order to hate imperialism, you've got to be part of it. Seen from the outside, the British rule in India appears benevolent and even necessary. But it is not possible to be part of such a system without recognizing it as an unjustifiable tyranny. Even the thickest-skinned Anglo-Indian is aware of this. Every native face he sees in the street brings home to him his monstrous intrusion. From the most unexpected people, from gin-pickled old scoundrels high up in the government service, I've heard some such remark as, Of course we've no right in this blasted country at all. Only now we're here, for God's sake, let's stay here. The truth is that no modern man, in his heart of hearts, believes that it is right to invade a foreign country and hold the population down by force. So I thought that was a really fucking great quote, just because, like, the the insight, as an Imperial police officer who kept getting promoted, he was actually talking to all these agents of empire, you know, and he yeah, was... Yeah. He, all these fucking drunken scoundrels, you know? <laughs> and he knew the way that they were talking and thinking about this stuff and, and the kind of like double think that they had to hold in their heads to do it. You know? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's so fucking weird. Yeah, that was um, very interesting. Yeah, cool. <laughs> so this direct experience of imperialism's evils made all the difference for Eric Blair. Looking back on this time, he states in an interview that, quote, I was in the police, which is to say I was part of the machinery of despotism. After watching a man being led to his death by hanging and observing him walk around a puddle rather than stepping in it, Eric resolves to leave the Imperial <laughs> Police Force. <laughs> wow, that's that's really interesting, actually. That's a neat little quote about not stepping in the puddle. I know. Yeah, when you're about to die. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, I don't know what it's to like, make of it, but it's neat. Well, I mean, his... His interpretation of, of that, of seeing that was just like, what, why should we have any power over people's lives? This is a, like, this is someone yeah. with their own autonomy, their own, like, decision making, even they're going to avoid this thing, even though they're doomed to die, you know? Yeah, and yeah, totally. What right does anyone else have to do this? And so, like, fuck yeah. this job. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. He, so he resolves to leave the Imperial Police Force. In his own words... I could not go on any longer serving an imperialism which I had come to regard as very largely a racket. The following segment from The Road to Wigan Pier offers a lot of insight into the experiences and thought processes that led Eric to abandon his post with the Imperial Police. I was not going back to be part of that evil despotism. despotism. But I wanted much more than merely to escape from my job. For five years I had been part of an oppressive system and it had left me with a bad conscience. Innumerable remembered faces, faces of prisoners in the dock, of men waiting in the condemned cells, of subordinates I had bullied and aged peasants I had snubbed, 
of servants and coolies I had hit with my fist in moments of rage, haunted me intolerably. I was conscious of an immense weight of guilt that I had got to expiate. I suppose that sounds exaggerated, but if you do for five years a job that you thoroughly disprove of, you will probably feel the same. I had reduced everything to the simple theory that the oppressed are always right and the oppressors are always wrong. A mistaken theory, but the natural result of being one of the oppressors yourself. I felt that I had got to escape not merely from imperialism, but from every form of man's dominion over man. I wanted to submerge myself, to get right down among the oppressed, to be one of them, and on their side, against their tyrants. Uh, I think that's a common sentiment among white people and, and colonizers in general, is um, at, at least the ones who, who see the, the, the wrongdoing that their, their country or whatever is doing. They, mm -hmm. um, they want to identify with, with the oppressed, um, yeah, yeah. And they find ways to identify with the oppressed, which in a way is a good thing. Um, yeah. It's it, the, the solidarity and everything's good. But I think it also gets annoying for uh, uh, people of color and, and for marginalized groups. Yeah, for the oppressed. <laughs> yeah. It's just an, it's another way, uh, albeit one that's not as like nefarious, that they're they're kind of brought down and reminded that they're different, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm guilty of that as well. As, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just something I was thinking of. And I think uh, he's actually gotten a lot of criticism from the left because of things like this, where he's like, mm -hmm. I want to become one of the, uh, you know, the lower yeah, class yeah. and, you totally. know, experience what they're experiencing. Um, you know, anyone that did that, which Jack London did as well, yeah. gets criticism from the left about, yeah. you know, you're just pretending and you're you're actually rich and you, you're like, yeah, he yeah, wasn't totally, at this point, totally. but yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But... But yeah, you're totally right to point out that this is like a, it's, it's complicated, you know? It is. It's very complicated. It's a symptom of, of capitalism and imperialism. And, Absolutely. uh, you know, even, even the, the people who are part of the oppressive population still suffer under capitalism. It's, it's, albeit far less, yeah, uh, yeah, it's yeah. still, yeah, we, we all suffer under it. Um, mm -hmm. and if we can find ways to, uh, link up our suffering and feel that solidarity. That's great. Yeah. No, I think, uh, I mean, you're re really right to point that out because it is, I love that where he took his, his experiences as an Imperial police officer. And that's Definitely. great. That's where people should go. You know, you should, exactly. You shouldn't want yep. to just like fucking double down on your imperialistic stance, you know, that's how you unbastardize a cop is you make them. So they're not a cop anymore. You convince them <laughs> to not be a cop and that their job's shit. And then you're good. I love that. <laughs> yeah. It's a, I have a whole course, a mail order course called Unbastardize Your Cop Uncle. So. Oh, my God. That's awesome. Oh, my God. Wait, that's an actual, like, course? No. Like, no. Okay. Oh, my God. Oh, my no. God. I wish that was a thing. <laughs> Fuck. No, I, I was just I was just riffing and not doing yeah. a very good job at it. I was really, really hoping that that was real, though. God damn it. Fuck. <laughs> it would be well, so, we can make so it happen. useful. Yeah, let's do that shit. Seriously. <laughs> After leaving his job as an Imperial police officer and returning to his parents' home in England, Eric decides he's going to become a writer of naturalist novels with unhappy endings. And so if, if you don't know what naturalism is, it's like a literary movement from the 1800s where they like offer a lot of bleak social commentary and um, and it's kind of like gritty and deterministic and um, dark, very dark social messages. So he's like, I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a millennial Twitter account. Basically. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> my Instagram That's account. That's spot on, man. <laughs> Later, Orwell writes that I knew that I, I had, had a facility with words and a power of facing unpleasant facts. All of which align with the naturalist genre. In his essay, Why I Write, Orwell describes his motivations for writing, explaining that what I had most wanted, wanted to, do to do is to make political writing into an art. I think he fucking succeeded with that. Yeah, he did that. Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> Just got misinterpreted by everyone. 
1927, Eric makes his first real stab at writing for a living. Six months later, he hadn't sold any of his work. He's now 24 years old and plagued with chronic chest infections, which might have been tuberculosis. Still, he ignores his doctor's orders and continues to smoke and drink. <laughs> Eric feels himself pulled toward the oppressed, impoverished members of humanity. The year is now 1928, and England is living through a worsening economic downturn. Determined to understand the poverty so many were experiencing, Blair begins living as a tramp and sleeping in shelters for days and weeks at a time. So same same thing that he gets shit for, just like Jack London did, where he like becomes homeless voluntarily and yeah, starts yeah. writing about it and shit, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whatever you gotta do, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're gonna try to be a, a mouthpiece for the working class, you better get down there and get, you know, understand what you're writing about, you know? Totally. Like, otherwise, I feel like you have no legitimacy writing about those things, so... <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> In England, Eric observes a power dynamic between rich and poor that is extremely similar to the dynamic that he has witnessed between the British Empire and the colonized people of Burma. Because of this, his views of capitalism are founded on the same perceptions of injustice as his views of imperialism. He discusses this in The Road to Wigan Pier, where he states, It was in this way that my thoughts turned towards the English working, working class. It was the first time that I had ever been really aware of the working class. And to begin with, it was only because they supplied an analogy. They were the symbolic victims of injustice, playing the same part in England as the Burmese played in Burma. I now realize that there was no need to go as far as Burma to find tyranny and exploitation. Here in England, down under one's feet, were the submerged working class suffering miseries. The word unemployment was on everyone's lips. It is clear that witnessing the suffering and systemic oppression of the poor becomes the basis for Orwell's socialist belief system. He writes these words in his preface to the Ukrainian translation of Animal Farm. I became pro-socialist more, more out, out of a disgust, disgust with the way the poorer section of the industrial workers were oppressed and neglected than out of any theoretical admiration for a planned society. I like that quote. That's very nice. That's, yeah, I would and agree I with that. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> So many of the authors that I love the most that are anti-capitalist are really good at the critiques of capitalism. Yeah. Not so great at the presenting, like, a total viable alternative that's well laid out and, like, you know, it's it's complicated and murky to present yeah. a different yeah. system for living and yeah. everyone has their own... I mean, I honestly have never heard, like, you know, a super awesome one myself. I've heard one, like, yeah. ideas that I like better than others, but... Uh, I think the main yeah. thing is we know that that shit's fucked up and and something <laughs> something has to change. And I think yeah, you know totally. what for right now that's that's enough. You know, I consider myself I'm yeah. a I'm an idiot socialist is what I call myself. I <laughs> I I don't what? fucking read theory. I don't you know I like I like read I read shit, but I don't like I don't like study like you know socialist theory or anything. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, you know yeah. you don't have to be super smart to correctly identify that shit's fucked up so that's yeah, yeah that's yeah that's where i'm coming from i mean i think or orwell would be down with that idiot socialism because he <laughs> one of his problems with the left was that they were so like verbose and they had all these like mm -hmm. elevated ways of talking about yes. socialism and this revolution and, and you know all these specific terms that it's like it's like it's really grandiose elitist and, almost yeah in elite a way. it is very elitist well, I think at the time, a lot of those people were from probably coming from universities and and were, yeah. uh, uh -huh. you know, wealthier and which, you know, we have to give credit to, to some of those wealthy people, I think, that that, you know, turned towards socialism because they correctly yeah. identified something being wrong. Like just because you have money doesn't doesn't automatically make you like a bad person or anything. But yeah, totally. yeah you should, they, they're still missing something in that in their in their critiques because of their. The, the bubble that they're in, I think. Absolutely. So from 1928 to 29, Eric lives in Paris. Sadly, he ends up destroying everything that he writes during this period. Barely scraping by while working as a dishwasher at a hotel, Eric describes himself as remarkably happy during this poor chapter of his life, which is weird for him because he's a cynical fuck. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's surprising. 
<laughs> he likes washing dishes, though, apparently. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Returning to London, Blair finds himself sinking deeper and deeper into the lower class. Soon, he's begging on the street and sleeping in shelters. He writes, I lived for months amongst, amongst the poor, poor and half-criminal elements who inhabit the worst parts of the poorest quarters, begging and stealing. I associated with them for lack of money, but later their way of life interested me for its own sake. While living with his parents in Suffolk, Eric starts writing about life on the street, composing a book titled Down and Out in Paris and London. In it, he reflects on his perspective before and after experiencing poverty, stating that, I will never again think all tramps are drunken scoundrels or expect a beggar to be grateful when I give him a penny, nor be surprised when men out of work lack energy. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so fucking good. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, you expect someone living on the streets who's been fucked over by everyone in society to be like, thank <laughs> you so much. <laughs> this is You're great. You're my savior. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's a great quote. So the book is rejected by multiple publishers, frustrating the young author before he finally sees it published in 1933. In the essay Why I Write, Orwell describes this period of his life and how it strengthened his natural aversion to authority. I spent five years in an unsuitable profession. profession. The Indian Imperial Police in Burma. I then underwent poverty and a sense of failure. This increased my natural hatred of authority, but these experiences were not enough to give me an accurate political orientation. But he's going to get that, so. Um, <laughs> fearful that his writings and his choice to become an author might harm the reputation of his parents, Eric decides he wants a pseudonym. He dislikes the name Eric, <laughs> which I think is fine. I think it's, it's great. It seems like a good name to me. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> he dislikes the name Eric and fears that failure might damage his reputation as well. So he comes up with his pen name in April of 1933, George after the King of England and Orwell after a nearby river. Since this is the name we all know him by, I'm going to refer to Eric Arthur Blair as George Orwell from this point on. In March of 34, Orwell publishes Burmese Days. This novel describes his time in the Imperial Police, depicting the dark and oppressive character of the British Empire. So unfortunately, this novel portrays the native people of Burma in a kind of inferior light, which fucking sucks. But later on, he kind of doubles back and says he talks about this with a lot of regret. He leaves his parents home in 1934 and travels to Hampstead, London, where he rents a room and takes a half-time job as a, at a second-hand bookshop. This region is a leftist hotbed at this time, and Orwell quickly makes friends with some of the better-known intellectuals like Jack Common and Rainer Heppenstahl. I don't know really anything about them, but... Oh, you don't know Rainer Heppenstahl? <laughs> you Fuck <do>. you! <laughs> <laughs> Fuck this, I am out! <laughs> Way to embarrass yourself. Headphones out, damn it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that guy either. Heppenstall did a, a radio adaptation of uh, Animal Farm. Oh, oh really? That's cool. interesting. After his death, I guess, then. Wow. Huh. Um, yeah, it says from 1945 to 1965, he was at the BBC on radio. Oh. Whoa. One of his early adaptations was Animal Farm in 1947. That's, That's actually awesome. pretty cool. That would be neat to hear. <laughs> Thank you. That was very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so Orwell actually lives with Rainer for a short time until Rainer takes a drunken swing at or drunken swing at Orwell for telling him to quiet down. And then he's like, "Get the fuck out of my apartment." <laughs> yeah, not cool. But then he still goes Man, on to Orwell's do the radio so thing. Orwell's so fucking punk rock, dude. This dude's so <laughs> punk rock. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> George Orwell doesn't give a fuck about anything. Nope, zero <laughs> I love him so much. He's kind of, yeah, I I idolize him in some ways, a lot of ways. He's definitely a figure that I identify with. But um, was okay, George so Orwell ever in like a ska band or anything? <laughs> <laughs> 
I think he was actually in Operation Ivy. I'm pretty sure. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my god, that's why I yeah. like him so much. <laughs> and that is science, and you can take that to the bank. <laughs> You know how they always say that? <laughs> yeah, that's a saying, a legit saying that people say. Smart people. Ben's always Peter. saying that. <laughs> Put that in your pipe and take it to the bank. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> killing me. Orwell meets his wife-to-be in the spring of 1935. Eileen Maud O'Shaughnessy is an Oxford graduate and a psychologist in training who has a deeply philosophical mind. After working in the bookshop for more than a year, Orwell realizes he needs more money to marry Eileen. Luckily, he's given a lucrative writing assignment by the left-wing publisher Victor Golance, who asks Orwell to travel to industrial Britain and report on the dire working conditions and the rampant unemployment among the working class. Traveling to the industrial slums in Lancashire and Yorkshire, George observes men, women, and children living in horrific poverty. The Road to Wigan Pier is inspired by Orwell's time living on the street. Here's another passage from this novel that illuminates his views regarding imperialism and capitalism. In the last resort, the only important question is, is, do you want the British Empire to hold together, or do you want it to disintegrate? And at the bottom of his heart, no Englishman does want it to disintegrate. For apart from any other consideration, the high standard of life we enjoy in England depends upon our keeping a tight hold on the Empire, particularly the tropical portions of it, such as India and Africa. Under the capitalist system, In order that England may live in comparative comfort, a hundred million Indians must live on the verge of starvation. An evil state of affairs, but you acquiesce in it every time you step into a taxi or eat a plate of strawberries and cream. The alternative is to throw the empire overboard and reduce England to a cold and unimportant little island where we should all have to work very hard and live mainly on herrings and potatoes. That is the very last thing that any left-winger wants. It is at this point that one begins to grasp the unreality of most people's attitude towards the class question. So long as it is merely a question of ameliorating the worker's lot, every decent person is agreed. Take a coal miner, for example. Everyone, barring fools and scoundrels, would like to see the miner better off. If, for instance, the miner could ride in a comfortable trolley instead of crawling on his hands and knees, if he could live in a decent house and have ten pounds a week wages, splendid. Moreover, anyone who uses his brain knows perfectly well that this is within the range of possibility. The world, potentially at least, is immensely rich. Develop it as it might be developed, and we could all live like princes, supposing that we wanted to. And to a very superficial glance, the social side of the question looks equally simple. In a sense, it is true that almost everyone would like to see class distinctions abolished. Stop calling me sir, you chaps. Surely we're all men. Let's pal up and get our shoulders to the wheel and remember that we're all equal. And what the devil does it matter if I know what kind of ties to wear and you don't? And I drink my soup comparatively quietly and you drink yours with the noise of water going down a waste pipe. But, unfortunately, you get no further by merely wishing class distinctions away. More exactly, it is necessary to wish them away, but your wish has no efficacy unless you grasp what it involves. The fact that has got to be faced is that to abolish class distinctions means abolishing a part of yourself. Here am I, a typical member of the middle class. It is easy for me to say that I want to get rid of class distinctions, But nearly everything I think and do is a result of class distinctions. All my notions, notions of good and evil, of pleasant and unpleasant, funny and serious, of ugly and beautiful, are essentially middle-class notions. My taste in books and food and clothes, my sense of honor, my table manners, my turns of speech, my accent, Even the characteristic movements of my body are the products of a special kind of upbringing and a special niche about halfway up the social hierarchy. 
To get outside the class racket, I have got to suppress not merely my private snobbishness, but most of my other tastes and prejudices as well. I have got to alter myself so completely that at the end, I should hardly be recognizable as the same person. What is involved is not merely the amelioration of working class conditions, nor an avoidance of the more stupid forms of snobbery, but a complete abandonment of the upper class and middle class attitude to life. So in this long passage, Orwell is just really diving into the challenge that you face if you try to think about a world where you're not um, a part of an empire and a part of an elevated class. If you're trying to do away with these parts of your mind and yourself, you are up against everything that you are already composed of because these things constitute who you are to such a huge degree. Um, The things that you consume, the, you know, every time you eat a plate of strawberries and cream, but also all of your values, all of the things that you think are good and bad, uh, evil and, you know, and, and positive, all of these things are all entrenched into you by your upper class upbringing, your middle class upbringing, whatever it is, you, it's, it's so hard to leave these things. Um, So, so he's really just kind of laying out for us how much of a challenge we face if we do want to do away with class because it is doing away with who what what makes us who we are to a huge degree. Yes. It's a sacrifice that we have to make uh or that we can make, I guess. We don't have to. Uh but yeah, that's I struggle with that constantly. I think about that so much and just how um uh yeah, how difficult it is to even imagine being born to a different class or what what that would be like Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. i mean i I, you know i interact with people all the time that are of lower classes and and higher classes and i just i can't see myself anywhere else but but where i am so yeah Yeah. it's 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 very very difficult um yeah Yeah. and then trying to imagine a classless society like if it's hard to even step outside of everything your that own. you know based yeah. on your own class then how do you even conceive of something <laughs> like that you know yeah yeah and there's there's a certain like i think there's a certain truth or there's a there's a real truth to what he's saying about how i think i mean i think part of his point is that we are all it's not just our government it's not just the 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 heads of the empire it's it's all the people that come into the the like colonized countries afterwards and mm-hmm. it's it's mm-hmm. it's all of us that are contributing to it but i uh-huh. think even like more so now than ever like we just have less and less choice like there's it it just reminds me of the argument about like oh you're you're anti-capitalist but you buy things you know that sort of <laughs> right wing talking point you know uh-huh. it's like well i i mean yeah, yeah. to get a job i have to have a phone like i mean we all know this stuff but it's just, yeah. it's so hard to separate. Um, yeah, it's something I, I struggle with constantly. Uh, just, yeah, I find myself a lot thinking about what it's like for poorer people or what it's like for richer people. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I yeah. And it's, you know, that person that says, but you have an iPhone and blah de blah de blah I'm like... <laughs> I, that's the critique that I, I throw at myself all the time, you know, like, I don't need it from you. Go fuck yourself. Like, I already am, am critiquing everything that I consume and do all the time, and it sucks. So, like, yep. yeah. go fuck yourself. It does suck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And living in an empire, in an empire, too, there's uh, a large degree of um, being desensitized from the the normalization of the empire. I mean, it's not even that you don't have to normalize it because we're all born into it and we're, this is all we experience, but it's, it's so much like, it's not just the people at the top. Like you were saying, it's like, we've all inherited this. It is so much of like our makeup entrenched into every single one of us, even though we're not like the, we didn't plan this out or, you know, we're not trying to perpetrate it really. (laughs) Like, yes, yes, exactly. But Um, at the same time, we're, we're also victims of it. Whereas the people at the top are not victims of it. They're benefiting from it. So we have a certain culpability, 
but also we are victims. And and yeah, you know, anyone who's That's not rich is it. a victim of capitalism to one extent or another. There's always people who are more <laughs> more brutalized, obviously, like uh, people of color and you know other marginalized yeah. groups. But uh, yeah. you know, that the the big point is that we all need to recognize that we're all getting fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> that was amazing. Saved it, dude. Comedic timing is fucking priceless. Amazing. Perfect. Uh, I'm sorry. That. Okay, that was my one. <laughs> no, that was that was necessary. Cheersing myself. <laughs> <to that>. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, that was great. Okay. Okay, because I feel like I just didn't know where I was going and kept forgetting things, so, you know. No, Ben, you are acting as a great springboard (laughs) for discussion. I believe it's called a boner board. (laughs) (laughs) Oh wait, okay. Okay. <laughs> These two sound effects are doing fucking work today. They are just pulling the majority of their weight. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the same novel details Orwell's agonizing experience of traveling a mile deep into a mine. He describes the miners as splendid men, explaining that. Quote, all of us really owe the comparative decency of our lives to poor drudges underground, blackened to the eyes, with their throats full of coal dust. The day after going down the mine, Orwell travels to visit a friend, arriving without a bag or a hat and shivering. He's bedridden for a few days, but soon he's back on his feet. Wait, where was his hat? <laughs> the most important question here. <laughs> yeah, not okay to do. Show up. To your friend's house, no hat. No hat. That's, yeah. Nope. Yeah, 1935, that's just like having your dick out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> Which the dollar is very clear. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <they do. laughs> By the end of 1935, Orwell is able to live off the royalties from the road to Wigan Pier. He and Eileen move to the countryside and by June of 36, the two are married. At this point, Orwell is 33 years old and finally feeling content with his life. They begin growing vegetables to supplement their income, and they keep a chicken and a milk goat named Muriel. In spite of his newfound comfort, Orwell feels himself pulled once again towards the important struggles of his times. Fascism has already reared its ugly head in 1920s Italy with Benito Mussolini, and again in 1930s Germany, as Hitler becomes chancellor. Then in July of 36, right-wing military officers revolt against the government of Spain. Fascist Francisco Franco broadcasts a message to army officers, calling upon them to overthrow the leftist government. In the civil war that ensues, the working class forms a militia that fights against General Franco and his followers, who were known as the Nationalists. These pro-Franco forces were supported by Mussolini's regime in Italy and Hitler's regime in Germany, and they soon succeeded in overtaking much of Spain. Orwell is deeply troubled by the rapid spread of fascism. Appalled by the press's rampant misreporting on the conflict, Orwell travels to Spain to write about the clash between communism and fascism. After arriving in 1937, he becomes determined to fight in the Spanish Civil War alongside the working class. In his novel, Homage to Catalonia, Orwell writes that, When I joined the militia, I had promised myself to kill one fascist. After all, if each of us killed one, they would soon be extinct. He joins the POUM, the Partido Obrero de Unificación Marxista, a revolutionary Marxist movement composed of workers and trade union members, and soon he finds himself marching into the mountains west of Barcelona. So that's where we're going to conclude the first part of this three-part series on George Orwell. Um, 
in the next episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Spanish Civil War and then his return to Great Britain just in time for the Blitz, which is also fucking crazy. So we hope you'll join us for that. And um, I just wanted to thank Ben so much for being on the show. You've been fucking fantastic. And I I just want to record with you all the time. You're so fun. <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me. It's been really, really fun. And I'm look, er, looking forward to talking about this more. Podcasters gotta eat too, and drink, because this shit is depressing. Your donations help us buy new equipment, pay for platforms, and get drunk. <laughs> you can find us on Patreon and gain some fun benefits like our rad enamel pin. That's at patreon.com slash cocktails and capitalism. If you want to support the show but can't donate, we get it. We'd love for you to leave us a rating or a review. Huge thanks to Mike Fiore for the voiceover work. His professional contact details are in the episode description. And I want to say thanks to Dreamweaver, that's D-R-M-W-V-R, for the use of our theme song. And you can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. Lastly, we're putting out a call for listeners to send in their stories about how they became anti-capitalists. If there was a particular issue or experience that woke you up to the evils of our for-profit capitalist system... We want to hear from you. Send your stories to cocktailsandcapitalism at gmail.com, and we may include it in an upcoming episode. Mm-hmm.